certainly is good to be here this evening with you, and I'm sorry that I'm not wearing a sport coat. I have a 100-degree rule. If it's over 100 degrees, either the tie goes or the coat goes, and I decided to let the coat go this morning. Our heat at uh, our air conditioner at church actually went out this morning, and uh, one of our brothers who takes care of that found it about 6.30 this morning and fixed it, but let's just say it was a little warm at Woodbury, and that coat will be dry cleaned probably tomorrow, so uh, we had a very warm morning this morning. I was uh, at school the last two weeks in Montgomery, Alabama, and I was on my way home and uh, driving down I-65, got to Calera, Alabama, and the interstate traffic stopped. And I did as my dad taught me to do, turn right as quick as you can and get off the interstate and start traveling. I was traveling through Alabama, places I had no idea where I was, but I figured if I kept going that direction, I'd get back to Woodbury. And I went by a church sign, and the sign on the front of the church said, Hell's Hotter. And I thought, what an appropriate title is the heat has been here lately so the the detour was worth seeing the church sign uh it's good to be here tonight i want to thank you for the invitation uh it's neat to come into different church buildings and i like this church building because it looks like the one that i grew up in the the cedar the beams and the the tiles on the top and it just reminds you of being at home sometimes it's amazing how uh i'm kind of a weird i guess a lot of about that, but I like to go to different church buildings and see how their church is laid out and how the building was built, and it's always neat to see one that's like the one you grew up in. So I feel at home already, even though I've never been here before. So uh, I appreciate the invite. I've got two of a fan club, uh, Jubba and Sarah Womack are here from Woodbury. They have a few golfing buddies that go to church here, so I'm glad that they trekked over from Woodbury tonight uh, to be here. Tonight, uh, I have to admit, I have not done, Tony, a topical sermon in four or five years. It's been a long time. It's been a little challenging for me to put a sermon together topically, but I've enjoyed the challenge tonight of talking about anger and wrath, those two words as they go together. There's a passenger who boarded a plane from Los Angeles to New York, and he told the flight attendant as they laid over in Dallas that he would like for her to wake him up where he could get off at Dallas and remind him, don't let me fly all the way to New York. Make sure that I get off. So the passenger awoke as the plane landed in New York. He was frustrated and angry that the stewardess had forgotten about him and demanded an explanation. And he mumbled an apology. He was raging. He was, he was stomping off the plane. Boy, was he mad. And everybody felt sorry for this poor stewardess. And they said, well, what, what do you think about this? What made him so mad? She goes, I'm not sure about that, but I thought the guy that I let off in Dallas was mad. <laughs> you should have seen him. <laughs> Anger is a God-given emotion that can either serve us good or get us into a lot of trouble. Let me state from the very beginning that anger in and of itself is not a bad thing. A lot of times we have the idea that anger is bad, that you shouldn't be angry at all. Anger can be a very good thing. As a matter of fact, we should note that 375 times in the Scriptures, God is said to be angry. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament And the Hebrew language is such a rich language that has a lot of uh, iconic and uh, imagery that comes with it. And I love this description of God in Exodus 34. You might remember that Moses has been gone for 40 days on the mountain. Now, what do you think about the children of Israel during the Sinai events and during the Egyptian events? They have had God's presence or some form of God's presence with them at all times. You think about the pillar of cloud. You think about the presence of Moses himself. You think about the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. Something tangible about God has been with them this whole time. And all of a sudden in Exodus chapter 32, Moses has gone 40 days. They have nothing tangible in front of them and they panic. 
And what did they do? They took all their gold and they made a calf. Now, what did they do? Did they worship the calf as if it was God? No, they were trying to make an image of God. They forgot that we are His image. People are His image. And so God was enraged. Moses was enraged. Moses even said, he went and you remember he ground that calf up into pieces and put it in their water and made them drink it? And you remember how raging God was. God wanted to wipe the whole nation out and start all over again with Moses. And finally Moses petitioned God. And we get to chapter 34. The new tablets are made. In verse 6, something spectacular happens. So I find a lot of people don't know this, and it fascinates me. If you see L-O-R-D in your translation of the Bible in all capital letters, do you know what that means? That means Yahweh, Jehovah. Jehovah is actually a mispronunciation of the name Yahweh. As a matter of fact, a J did not exist in the English language until 1615 or so. And that's why in the original 1611 translations of the King James Version, you have Y's in there because J was not developed yet in English. But you have Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. My personal name is Andy. Human, man, is what describes me. God is what God is, but Yahweh is His name. And so when you see L-O-R-D in all capital letters in your translation, that's telling you that this is Yahweh. That's His name. So we're reading along in verse 6. Yahweh passed before Him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. Now notice how He describes Himself. A God merciful and gracious. Your translation probably says, slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Now notice, he reveals his name and says, my name is Yahweh, but here's who I am. I'm a gracious God. This is where the word for mercy develops from. But I like this slow to anger. In the Hebrew language, it literally reads, he was long-nosed. You see, the Hebrew people believe that, that anger came from your nose. They must have known my sister very well. When my sister became angry, her nostrils would flare out. And if you looked hard enough, you could see smoke sometimes when you looked at it. You know, the Hebrew people also thought that your, your intestines or your bowels was a seat of compassion. That's why the King James, your bowels of tender mercy. The heart was really a euphemism for the mind. But here we have the Lord has got a long nose. He's got a long fuse, not a short fuse. In other words, it's not easy to make him angry. And so if you accomplished making him angry, you've done quite a bit. And 375 times in Scripture, the Lord is said to have been angry. But let me submit to you that anger is an extension of love and passion. You know, when a married couple will come to my office and they're not getting along, they need counseling, Every now and then they'll sit down and they'll begin to cuss at each other and fight and throw stuff. And I'll say, isn't this just wonderful? What? You're in love with each other. Well, what do you mean? Well, you're bickering and fussing and carrying on. That means you still love one another. You see, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is when you don't care anymore. When a couple doesn't even come to your office, usually it's too late. When you go talk to a married couple and they don't care if they stay married or not anymore, that's when you're in trouble. The love is gone. But if they're still mad and angry and fussing at one another, they've got some love there. Because love, one of its side effects, is anger and jealousy. Passionate people are people who get angry very quickly. Our Lord, an example on this earth, several times as Jesus was on the face of the earth, was said to be angry. I think back to uh, 
the time he went into the synagogue. Mark 4 talks about it. Mark 5, Mark 3 talk about it. But anyway, Jesus goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and saw a man with a, with a withered hand. And Jesus restored his hand back. And the Pharisees watching, they knew he was going to do that. They were ready to trap him. And Mark 3 says they were willing to go so far, they were ready to destroy him from that day on. Isn't that something? That their hearts were that hard? They didn't care about this handicapped man. They didn't care about the power of God. They didn't care about this man whatsoever. They only cared to protect their own laws and their own rules and traditions. But Jesus showed anger. Mark chapter 10, when his disciples tried to send away their mother and children, he became indignant and stressed that children have a positive attitude, a humble attitude, where they give up their ambitions in life to follow someone innocently. And that's the way my disciples should be. Mark chapter 11, he was angry when he drove those out of the temple. Uh, John chapter 2 records a similar event. He took the cords, he whipped, and he drove people out of the temple because they had made the temple into basically a flea market. They had lost their reverence for God. Warfield writes that a man who cannot be angry cannot be merciful. You ever thought of the depth of that comment? A man of mercy is a man who gets angry. Because a man who can show mercy in the fact of being angry previously truly shows that he's reflected on mercy in his gracious attitude. The idea of anger and wrath, I want to submit tonight, is not always a bad thing. But, as we know, anger can produce a lot of things that are negative. The real issue is not so much angry, but what you do when you get angry. How do you deal with it? Does it result in sin? Does it result in honor? I've only been around for next week or Friday. I'll be around 32 years on this earth. But I've learned there are four types of angry people in this world. First of all, you have the manic person who yells, who blows up and explodes and blows their top, flies off the handle. We have all these idiomatic statements to describe someone. They lose everything in a rage and fit. They pop their top in front of everyone. That's one type of person who becomes angry. I think the one that scares me the most is the mute the person who stews inside, who is angry and boils on it and becomes resentful and holds bad feelings for years and years and years. Before I came to Woodbury, I made an agreement with our elders that we had a 48-hour rule. If I made you mad, you're to tell me within 48 hours. If you make me mad, I'm to tell you within 48 hours. I found that if you let it go over 48 hours for two days, usually it doesn't end well, does it? Resentment builds. You start looking for reasons to get mad. You start finding things and reading things that aren't there. And one day your relationship will eventually be destroyed. My friend Jerry Barber always says, wouldn't it be great if Christians could get together and tell the truth? And his idea is, what if Christians could get together and express, I'm really angry at you and here's why. A third type of person who is angry is a martyr. This is a person that after they become angry, they want to throw a pity party. And they want the whole world to know that they have suffered unrighteously. And they usually, this is the type of person who likes to broadcast their dissent over a large group of people. And finally, you have what's called the manipulator, the Leicocas of the world. I don't get mad, I get even. I'm going to get you back. I want you to consider the following principles, and maybe we could shift to a couple of remedies or a couple of things to think about and learn about when it comes to anger. First of all, sudden anger needs to be controlled. When we become angry instantly, we need to learn to harness our anger, to control our anger. People who fly into a rage seldom ever make a good landing. 
I love the book of Proverbs. The writer has observed life. He's observed life in communion with God, so he has a godly perspective as he observes life. And he has several things to say about anger. Proverbs fourteen seventeen, He who is quick-tempered does stupid things. One who does vile things is hated. One who is quick-tempered. Isn't that true? Losing your top at someone, you do something really dumb afterward. I don't know how many athletes. I played, uh, got the fortune of playing soccer while I was in college. And it's always fun when you're playing a season, when you have one of your key players who gets angry and he does something really stupid like kick the bleachers and breaks his ankle. You know, he flies off a rage and it makes him feel good for just a second until he breaks his ankle. And then he's no good to himself and he's definitely no good to the team anymore. All he's good for is to sit on the sidelines and keep the bench from flying off, isn't he? What good did that do? To lose your anger and your temper in such a way. Proverbs 15, 18. Hot-tempered people stir up strife, but patient people quiet quarrels. Proverbs 14, 29. Being slow to anger has great understanding. Being quick-tempered makes folly worse. Isn't that true? There was a man by the name of John Hunter who had trouble with his heart. And he was told over and over again, Your life literally hangs in the balance of you keeping your temper under control. Because if you get angry, your heart could explode at any day and have a heart attack. And he knew that. And he would live his life under the motto that who angers me is the one who can kill me. And one day he got in a heated debate with a man. It raged on and on for several hours. He walked out of the room and he was dead before the door closed behind him. Anger literally took his life. It's hard to admit that we have acted foolishly in anger. My friend likes to say that burning anger is like putting a burning trash can in a closet and shutting the door. Disaster is soon to follow if you do such a thing. But before reacting to anger, I had a fifth grade teacher named Miss Wilford. Miss Wilford was a very wise lady, especially for a young fifth grader. Most of you, when you're in the fifth grade, you don't think anybody's very wise, do you? And I still remember Miss Wilford to this day. She taught us a little acronym, FORD, F-O-R-D. She used to say, how do I feel? What are my options? What is the right thing to do? And what will I do? And she would ask us that before we would lose her anger. You know why she did that? I didn't learn this until 20 years later. Miss Wilford had one of the worst tempers you'd ever seen in your life. She'd been to counselors all these years, and that was a little acronym they had taught her, and she shared it with her fifth grade class. I don't remember any other thing about the fifth grade, but I remember Ford. And it comes in handy quite often when you lose your temper. Second of all, Sinful anger, we need to condemn sinful anger. It's obvious when you go to a certain extent or go too far that it needs to be condemned. We are often too easy on ourselves when it comes to being angry. We make excuses for our harsh temperaments. We want to overlook our sinful attitudes. We often, well, he just made me mad. I had the right to feel that way. You know, we live in a society now that wants to hold our rights and our privileges over everybody else no matter what it costs anyone else. And that's the counter opposite to everything that the Lord or Jesus has ever taught. If you could sum up the Bible in one statement, it's usually been voluntarily submit yourself for the betterment of other people. And when we elevate ourselves to that level, a lot of bad things happen. And when we lose our anger and when we put ourselves and our rights and our privilege above everyone else, don't be surprised if it ends poorly. How can I know that my anger is troublesome? Let me give you a couple of practical suggestions tonight. First of all, do I have the right to be angry? Do I have the right to be angry? If someone slashes my tires, I probably have the right to be angry. I have a little trouble with this, I'll be honest, when I get behind the wheel of an automobile. I have learned that Woodbury 
tries a man's patience at times. I live on 53 down toward Manchester, and you're driving along, doing very well, and we have a little place called Pelham's, and we go down 500 feet into Woodbury, and somebody always pulls out in front of me every single morning on the way to the church building and drives 35 down a 10%, 15%, 20% grade. And I wonder why. What did I do or my parents do that we have sinned, that you have punished us for this every single day? I have a big trouble with anger. Have you ever been to Murfreesboro on a Friday afternoon in traffic? There are more stoplights in that town than any other place I've ever been to in my life. And if you're in a hurry, it's rough, isn't it? It's rough. Do I have the right to be angry? Do I have that right? Folks, I've learned, I think one of the greatest sins that we struggle from is insecurity. Insecure people cause more church problems than anybody you're ever going to meet. When we are insecure about ourselves, we often read things that other people do, even though it's not uh, bad by any intent. We often look for reasons to get mad at other people. We often think people are putting us down. I think insecurity causes more sin than about any other thing in this world. And when we ask ourselves when we're insecure, do I really have the right to be angry? That would probably cure a lot of things from that point on, wouldn't it? And correct our attitude. Second of all, how can I know that my anger is troublesome? Not only do I have the right to be angry, is my anger directed at an individual or at an injustice? It goes back to the insecure people. You ever seen two ladies that spontaneously the same day wore the same dress somewhere? And they hate each other even though they don't know each other. All because they're wearing a dress that's similar. And you see two guys walk in wearing the same suit and they go, where'd you get that? And well, I got a good deal on it. It looks good on you. Well, that looks good on you. We don't care. We notice if you've got a new set of tires on your car. We don't know if you've got anything like us. We don't care. I've seen two ladies over the years at church fuss and bicker and carry on because they're wearing the same dress. Think about that. And they get mad at another human individual because they have taken their identity and their uniqueness in this world and copied it. Is that a real injustice? Well, probably not. Do I desire revenge? When I was growing up, there was an older gentleman in our congregation. This man uh, was a good man, didn't have any children. And he kind of took my dad under his wing. This man had been in D-Day. This man helped build the St. Louis Arch in St. Louis, one of the guys who helped construct that. Just a wonderful guy. He was a carpenter. And my dad would, would often have him over on the farm to help him he would do my dad's work. My dad has one eye, and he thinks that's the ultimate level, and he's a horrible carpenter because he'll go, ah, oh, it looks pretty good, and start nailing it. And this guy would show him the error of his ways and come and make sure everything was level. And we thought so much of this couple. And this couple asked my dad, as they got on up in years, Joe, my dad's name, Joe, would you be the administrator of our will? My dad said, I'd be honored to. And he said, well, your kids will go to college, and you won't have to worry about it if you'll do that. So my dad now had a college planned for his two children. It was happy. It was wonderful. Right after this man died, we had another person who didn't like my dad too much, and kind of horned into this man's widow and made up a bunch of stuff about my dad that wasn't true. He died. He was no longer the administrator. The college fund is gone. And you go to Freed Hardeman University. If you've ever been to a Christian school, it's not cheap. I'm still paying for it now. You know, for years, I've often thought my dad had every right to be mad at that individual. He probably was for a little while, but he's a more of a man than I'll ever be. He didn't seek revenge. 
He didn't do anything back. He said, well, we'll just make it the best we can. I don't know that I could be that way. An injustice done to you and somebody is seeking out after you. Next, is my anger something I cherish and hold on to? Do I like to be angry? A lot of people like to be angry. Do I have an unforgiving spirit? Is the way in which I'm handling this anger bringing honor to God? Those are some questions we must ask as we are going through stages of anger. Sinful anger has many consequences. Not only our own salvation, it hurts our example. It can hurt the Lord's church. How many people have you met to this day that will not set foot in a church building? Because someone lost their temper at them and said something that they shouldn't have said. Yes, that's no reason, and I don't think that will hold up to the Lord one day, but still we ought to be better than that. We're better people than that. We have to always be thinking about our persona, who we are, and who we are representing on this earth. But finally, stubborn anger can be conquered and needs to be conquered. Overlooking offenses is is part of the Christian walk. We read uh, Ephesians chapter 4. I want to look at Ephesians chapter 4 once more. And I want to close out with Ephesians chapter 5 and kind of give you a different take or different spin on all this. When anger is an issue, it must be dealt with quickly. We know what Paul had to say about making sure of being angry. Do not sin. Do, let, do not let the sun sit down on your anger. Have you ever lost your cool with someone and tried to go to bed that night and go to sleep and get a good night's rest? Oh, Paul knew what he was talking about, didn't he? It's almost impossible, isn't it? It will keep you up all night. You won't eat that night. You'll feel terrible that next morning. It's awful, isn't it? An awful feeling. A good sense of practical advice here. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Take care of that issue now. During our vacation Bible school two weeks ago, we had this sweet, little, innocent, young 26-year-old lady that goes to church with us, and her and my wife are just the best friends. Her and my wife are just alike. I mean, just sweet, innocent people. And then you got me, the counterbalance, the opposite. And this lady is such a sweet lady. And one of our dear sisters at church who likes to speak very quickly, maybe without thinking over it a couple of times, just lashed out at this girl at VBS one day. I mean, it was just ridiculous. This poor girl's heart was broken. She cried. She pretty much had to leave. She couldn't teach the rest of the day. She was tore up all week. Every time she saw this other lady, she'd get sick to her stomach. Just an awful feeling. And she said how she didn't sleep, and she came to talk to me about it. I said, well, why don't you go tell her about it? Well, I can't do that. Well, why not? Do you think it's right to carry this feeling around that you've been hurt? Maybe the other lady didn't realize she hurt your feelings. Why don't you go talk to her about it? Well, I can't do that. Well, how do I go do it? Well, it's easy. Go up and say, you know what? I want you to know I need to apologize to you. Well, what for? Because I had a choice of doing the right thing. Or you wanting, or, or me wanting you to like me, and I've decided that I really wanted you to like me, and so I wanted you to like me, so I didn't come tell you how I really felt about something. And she said, "Well, that's just silly. We'll go try it." So she did. And they hugged for two hours in the parking lot. They cried together, and they've been best friends for the last two weeks. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful when someone offends you, when someone makes you angry, when someone hurts your feelings? Go talk to them about it. And don't be rude or mean when you do it, but go talk to them. You really hurt me when you said that. Folks, if you carry that stuff around with you, it'll kill you. It creates resentment. It divides the body. What does the Lord say in Matthew 5? When you come to present your offering, your worship, your praise to Him, and you have a contention with the brethren, what do you do? You lay your altar down or a gift on the altar. You go, you take care of it, you come back, pick up your gift, and then you present it to the Lord. Folks, our fellowship with one another 
is in tune with our fellowship with God. If we break our fellowship with God, it breaks our fellowship with one another. If we break our fellowship with one another, it breaks our fellowship with God. We don't realize the community aspect of our faith sometimes. It's so important that God says, make it utmost in your life. Take care of it. Do not let it keep going. Anger leads to all sorts of things. Matthew chapter 5, 22, where uh, he talks about calling your brother Raka, which is blockhead or fool, or really it's a stronger word, pretty close to idiot. A man that does such a thing and harbors such resentment is bound for Gehenna. What did the Lord say about murder in the Sermon on the Mount? It starts in the heart with your anger. And when it builds and builds and builds, look what it can result in. It leads to bitterness and rage, brawling and slander and malice, just like we read in our passage tonight in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. One who conquers his anger is greater than a warrior who conquers her city. I love Proverbs 16, 32. It's important that we learn to conquer our anger. And let me piggyback with something else. Tony, I don't know if you remember Brother Coleman Crocker or not. Years ago, I was a youth minister one summer at a little church in Benton, Kentucky. And uh, working there one summer, and the brass young guy had just learned Greek, and I thought I could convert the world and put denominations out of business, and we were just going to save the world tomorrow just because they hired me. How lucky they were, and didn't know it. And he called me aside after a month, and he said, Andy, let me share something with you. Never forgot this, and pardon the bluntness of it. He said, Andy, instrumental music is a sin. Murder's a sin. And being a jerk is just as much a sin as those two things. I love that when I go back and I read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Boy, doesn't that hit you right between the eyes as you read this? Now let me close with something a little off the wall. I'd like to close with an idea and bring this home. We've kind of talked about anger. We've talked about anger being a good thing. It's not always a bad thing. It's an extension of love and passion for something. Anger can easily get out of hand, and it needs to be condemned. It needs to be controlled. We need to learn to do so quickly. But rarely do we talk about the power to live above anger. I wish you would turn me to Ephesians chapter 5. I want to turn to 5, verse 18, beginning. You know, let me uh, mention a quick Greek something here. And for those of you, maybe you won't fall out on me. I've noticed when you mention Greek or Hebrew, many people's eyes begin to close halfway with each of those words. And we like to see Greek, you know, and we'll say, well, this word means this, this. You know, the most important thing to Greek is this. It makes you slow down and pay attention. That's all it does. We read in too big a hurry. And we read and we miss over key things that are so important. Because we're in too big a hurry to read. And all Greek does is say, hey, you got to translate every word of me and look all of you up. And you got to slow down to do so. And it slows you down. But one of the most important things about Greek is your syntax. How your sentences flow. Look at verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Notice the command. Be filled with the Spirit. That's the command. Well, how do you do that? Do you pray for it? Do you ask for it? Does God just give it? Do you merit it? Well, notice the next verse, verse 19. Speaking or addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Boy, we in the church are familiar with that verse, aren't we? That's a close one to us. For singing. doesn't mention the instrument we sing. 
It's true, but that verse also has a lot more to it. You see, that word speaking or addressing cannot stand on its own. Remember back in the English grammar days of a participle? A participle is kind of a half noun, half verb. It's kind of a hybrid thing. You see, it has to go back and rely on your main point. And what's your main point? Be filled with the Spirit. Now notice, speaking to one another. And he tells us how. In a, in a psalm, singing type of way. Notice verse 20. Giving thanks is another participle. When? Always. And for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the next participle, verse 21. Submitting yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see how he tells us? He tells us about being filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit with the result that you do what? You sing. You speak to one another in singing. You always have an attitude of giving thanks. And you submit to one another. Now we love verse 22 and following on into chapter 6. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Husbands, to your wives. Uh, children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, do the same to those of your slaves. And all those relationships between the mothers, the fathers, the sons, the slaves, the masters are all examples of how we submit to one another. But what is he saying? He says, be filled with the Spirit. How? Speaking to one another and you're singing. Always giving thanks and submitting to one another. What do all three of those things have in common? You're putting your will aside, your ambitions aside, your desires aside, and you're voluntarily submitting yourself for the betterment of someone else. That is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Isn't that powerful? I love reading that passage. Doesn't that give you power? Doesn't that charge your battery? Doesn't that turn the air conditioning on for you on a hot day? It puts gas in your car? God speaks to us. A life filled with the Spirit. When you think of someone who is what we call a spiritual person, would not one of their characteristics be that they are slow to anger? They are mature that they will stop, they will pull back, they will look at the big picture, they will contemplate what they're about to say or do before they do it and refrain from it. Isn't that truly a mark of a spiritual person? And folks, you cannot be a spiritual person if you do not think spiritually. I love that passage in, Hebrew, in Ephesians 5. Be filled with the Spirit. And this is the way you live as you're filled with the Spirit. So as we think about anger, of controlling anger, keeping our anger in check, how do we do that? I submit to you that the Spirit, relying on the Spirit, the thoughts, the thinking concepts. What is the Spirit? You know, we struggle with the Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit? How does He work? What does He do? Folks, the Spirit has a huge influence on your mind. When you think the thoughts that God thinks, the Spirit has got you. You have a Spirit that forms, that binds you together with the Lord. David was a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? David thought like the Lord thought. That's the idea of a spiritual person and a person who lives by God's Spirit. Tonight, maybe you're gathered here. Maybe you've struggled with anger. What are you struggle with? Your anger, your insecurity. Something that you feel separates you from God. We read throughout Scripture that sin, God is a holy being. He cannot have any part of sin. Sin separates us from God. We cannot have communion, covenant, relationship with Him, with this in our life. Doesn't that make so much sense? 
Doesn't that explain why He's revealed something to us? Doesn't that explain why He's desirous to save us? Doesn't that explain why He wants us to live a certain way? Absolutely. Because of who He is. And His anger, His wrath, even though He punishes, those are all extensions of His love. His great love for us. Wouldn't you be frustrated if you had a child and you put a lot of effort into investing in your child and your child goes and rebels at a latter age and pretty much forsakes you and everything you've ever done? Doesn't that hurt? Doesn't that make you angry? Now you know how the Lord feels. Now you know how He feels. Or maybe you're here tonight and you're not a child of God in the first place. What do I do? We often go through five steps. We often talk about what do you have to do to be saved. Folks, there's more to it than five steps. There's more to being married than just getting along and talking to your spouse. There is an ultimate commitment that is so groundbreaking and radical that Jesus warns us, be sure to count the cost of this before you invest in it. Because once you go down the rabbit hole, following Christ, in tune with Christ, being a disciple with Him, there's no turning back. But you shouldn't want to either. That's why He teaches us about baptism, washing our past sins away, that we can now have a relationship with Him. That's why He talks about living faithful, confessing, admitting our faults to one another, changing, repentance, reforming our lives, our standards. But all those are faith. Do you believe in Him enough that you're willing to do those things? Tonight, maybe you're here, you're not a child of God, and you'd like to be a child of God. As customary in our congregations, we offer an invitation song to invite you to take on this commitment, to make it public known tonight. Or maybe you've done something that's separated you from God. You have trouble with your anger, whatever it may be. We are here to help you. And folks, this is a point I like to make at Woodbury. When I go to James chapter 5, James 4, I read all through James. He talks about confessing your sins one to another. I don't know that he had a front pew in mind when he said that. I think he has an idea of a support group where we sit around and we all confess the problems that we have. And how great is it when a brother can say, I'll keep you in check. I'll pray for you. I'll help you out. That's the essence. That's what God would do, and that's what God calls us to do. If you're here tonight and need to come, why don't you come as we stand and sing?